How are you guys doing? Make some noise. Alive and well. The church is alive and well. I'm trying to think of some joke to tell you, but nothing comes to mind. So I'll just be really serious. You don't believe that for a minute. Okay, are you ready? Get your Bibles open. John 5. We're going to start with John 5:16 to 18 and we'll read it together and then we're going to take it apart and reach some conclusions. It's an amazing passage and you're going to find out why in just a moment. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, the thing that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath, uh, the first sentence is, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the thing that he was doing was healing an invalid on the Sabbath, the holy day, the Jewish day of worship, which included not working. And healing someone had actually been interpreted as work. Now, John's going to deal with that incident of the healing of that invalid next week in the conclusion of the message that he began last week. So I'm jumping ahead, but you're going to get the picture of what this healing was all about. You're going to get that next week. All you need to know for right now is that the thing that Jesus is in trouble for is healing someone who'd been sick for a very long time. And he was so insensitive. Jesus was so insensitive to true righteousness that he went ahead and healed somebody on the Sabbath. It's outrageous. It's got to stop. In fact, it's got to stop. And since he won't stop, well, goodness and righteousness requires that we kill him. That's how we see to it. It won't happen anymore. This verse, these these couple of verses contain the two issues which define our Christian faith as something distinct from its Jewish roots. But more importantly, distinct from all other world religions. These two verses define the core truths of our faith that separate our faith, not only from our Jewish roots, but from every other world religion. These are important verses. What is the distinction? What separates us from all other world religions and Judaism? Well, the first distinction involves Jesus healing on the Sabbath. The second Distinction involves the nature of Jesus' relationship with his father. So there's two things going on that's frustrated the Jews and brought them to the point where they're going to kill him. They're already planning to kill him. It just takes some time. Two issues. The first one is healing on the Sabbath, and the next is the nature of Jesus' relationship with the father. And these two things illustrate the difference between our faith and every other world religion. Let's look first at healing on the Sabbath. By the time of Jesus, 
the Jewish religious leaders had succeeded in defining Judaism as a religion of laws. It had become essentially a legalistic religion. Knowing God had been replaced by knowing God's laws. Now, you just got to let that sink in. Knowing God had been, by the time of Jesus, pretty much completely replaced with knowing God's laws. Now, that's bad enough. We now have a mediator between God and man, and it's God's perfect holy law, which no one can live up to and no one can satisfy. Well, you're already cooked. You're in deep trouble when you're trying to live up to a holy law that can't be humanly lived up to. But it gets much worse. By the time of Jesus, God's law, the Mosaic law from the Old Testament, had been interpreted so many times and applied to every conceivable situation that legalistic religious lawyers could come up with that this interpretation had become horrendously complex and oppressive. They had tried to imagine every possible situation that a person could find themselves in and interpret what religious law would apply to that situation to give answers in advance so nobody would ever make a mistake. It turned into thousands and thousands of laws. You see, legalism is never neutral. Legalism is a yeast that continues to grow and permeates absolutely everything in its path. A little bit of law is never good enough. If a few laws are good, more laws are better. If more laws are better, then even more laws are better. Until all of your life becomes nothing but duty and obligation and focusing on what you've got to do to make God happy. Have you ever felt like that? Well, I grew up in a church like that, and that was all I understood of God till I was 28 years old. Let me give you an example. Do not work on the Sabbath had morphed into through rabbinic and pharisaical interpretation and application of a simple principle. Do not work on the Sabbath had turned into this. Walking is work. So. You can only walk 1,000 paces on the Sabbath, no matter what. Unless you're walking home, in which case you can walk 1,000 paces and a few to get yourself home. Home, they defined, and by the way, this isn't biblical. This is how they chose to define home. Home is a place at which you eat because they didn't have a lot of restaurants and everybody ate at home. So home is the place where you eat. So what they would do in order to not break the law, but still go for a walk on Sunday, their Sabbath, is you'd go out the night before and you'd bury a sandwich in the ground a thousand feet from your house. And then you could bury another sandwich in the ground another thousand feet from the first sandwich. And then you could bury another sandwich in a circle so that on Sunday, if you wanted, I'm not making this up. On Sunday, if you wanted to go for a walk, you go to the first sandwich and eat it. And then you go to the second sandwich and eat it. And then you go to the third sandwich and eat it. And then you get to get a thousand paces to come home. So you could get, you could still be holy and get yourself a walk on Sunday. 
<laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Guys, this isn't appealing to you, but let's say you buried a really good hamburger. And you had a chain of really good hamburgers. Well, then it's worth going for the walk, just for the food alone. Can you see how absolutely insane this has become? What was a rule to give people rest and take care of their animals so they didn't work for seven days a week has turned into a system so oppressive that keeping the system correctly will destroy any chance of rest? Hello? Does the irony get to you? It's insanity. Jesus came to set his people free from this religious law-based paradigm and to replace it with a religion that is really not a religion at all. It's just a simple relationship with God through love. Now, this would mean the end of the Jewish leaders' entire system of legalism. It would lead to the end of their control over the temple. It would lead to the end of control over people. And for this threat, they hated him and they decided to kill him. And you need to understand it's all in the name of righteousness. Because he's a threat to their system of righteousness. Their understanding of God has become so legalistic that the only possible way of pleasing God is to keep these ever-expanding, absurd rules. And this is in the name of righteousness. Righteousness has now been so warped by legalism and religious tradition as to justify killing God. Isn't that fascinating? Look at the irony here. Righteousness has now been defined and so warped by legalism and religious tradition that they can actually kill God in their midst. Emmanuel, God with us, who has come to set them free from this system and they'd rather kill God than lose this system. And we look at these people and we say, well, they're, yeah, they're... they're Crazy. Well, today, most church splits do exactly the same thing. We destroy our relationships for the sake of saving our traditions. There was one church split in the South a number of years ago, and it, it, it was a Baptist church, and a new church started, and the name of the new church was the Anti-Peg Baptist Church. See, the church is split over this issue. The pastor had asked the elders to have a peg pounded into the wall at the back of the church so that he could hang his coat there while he went up to preach. And the elders split over whether or not they should put a peg in the wall. And some of the elders decided to allow the peg in the wall and the others said, no, we're the anti-peg people. So they left and started a new church called the Anti-Peg Baptist Church. This is, this is true. This is a true story. I read it on the Internet. <laughs> well, it's a true story, OK? I mean, can you believe that? You destroy Relationships, which, by the way, are the most important things in the universe to God. 
Since he is a relationship, he cares about relationships. Three in one, he's a family. And we destroy the image of God on earth over a peg in the wall at the back of the building? Well, Jesus refuses to operate from a religious paradigm. He knowingly and intentionally breaks this law to illustrate God's heart for people. What you'll notice in the life of Jesus, which is quite interesting, is whenever Jesus has to choose between protecting an institution or taking care of an individual, he always chooses the individual. He will sacrifice the institution to save the person. And we will often sacrifice the person to protect the institution. Jesus does not operate from a religious paradigm and the Jewish leaders cannot imagine a relational paradigm. They can't imagine a relational paradigm with God. They are so far down the road of legalism that they can't even think of being in the presence of God without having washed themselves ceremonially in the most absurd fashions to make sure they're holy enough to have a relationship with him as if holiness can be achieved through law. Only, only Satan will tell you that holiness can be achieved through law. Only Satan. Jesus came to save you from that. Jesus refuses to operate from a religious paradigm and the Jewish leaders cannot imagine a relational paradigm. And for that reason alone, they need to kill him. But of course, there's more. Now, there's the second issue that defines our faith as different from the faith that it grew out of, Judaism, and every other world religion. And this involves the nature of Jesus and our relationship with the Father. Jesus called God his own Father. The Jews considered God the father of their nation, but they would never, ever refer to God as their personal father. That was too intimate, too close, too familial, too much like a family, too, well, just, just, just not religious enough. So when Jesus did this, they recognized that he was claiming a personal and intimate relationship with God, who he had the audacity to call his father. And they took this as heresy. They accurately concluded that he was claiming a relationship of equality with God. He wasn't claiming equality with God. He was claiming family with God. He's my father. In answer to this allegation, you, you, you are, you're elevating yourself to the very level of God. You're claiming you can have this personal relationship with him. In answer to this allegation, Jesus explains his relationship with the father in this passage. And he says this. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. 
For the Father loves the Son. Shows Him all that He does. And yes, and He'll, he'll show Him even greater works than these. You're going to be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but He's entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And right there, the Jews are pulling out their religious knives. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The first thing we need to note in how Jesus defines His and our relationship, and we're going to get to this in a minute, He's not just defining His relationship with the Father. He's defining our relationship with the Father as well. And when he says, the, the key phrase here, the key phrase in this passage that defines his relationship with the Father and our relationship with the Father is this. He said, the Son can do nothing by himself. Jesus is telling them and us that he has divested himself of his divine power in order to make himself completely dependent upon his Father for his ability to please his Father. Isn't that interesting? He's made himself completely dependent upon his father for the ability to please his father. Now, what's important to understand in the Greek here. He's not saying he chooses to do nothing apart from his father's guidance. That's understandable. Well, I I choose only to do the will of my father. And so I'm just going to I'm just going to be very careful to always wait to see what he says, and I'm only going to do the things that he says. Now, I could go do other things by myself. I could act independently of him. I have the ability to do that, but I'm choosing not to, to honor my father. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this. When I left heaven to come to earth, I completely divested myself of any ability to act independently of my father. I can't do anything apart from him. Isn't that something? (laughs) Jesus, who is a part of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the Word came and revealed God to us. And the Word says, I can't do anything. I'm giving up. I'm giving up any ability whatsoever to do anything apart from my Father's will. I'm making myself utterly and completely dependent upon my Father for every righteous action that I, that I do. People, if you want a definition of humility, there it is. There's humility. He's saying, I don't have the ability to do anything apart from God. From what he wills and what he shows me. Jesus actually made him. Now, listen, here's the point. Jesus actually made himself fully human by giving up his divine power in order to put himself in our place as our representatives fully human. How much does he identify with us? How much does he identify with your pain? How much does he identify with your struggle? How much does he identify with your need? He gave up every ability in order to identify with your brokenness. 
He understands what it is to be powerless because he voluntarily made himself powerless. His identification is so perfect with you that he is fully and completely human. He is as dependent upon God for his righteous actions as we are. And by being completely dependent upon God's guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit, he is showing us all a human can be in God. Here's the miracle of Jesus. Jesus is all a human can be in God, and at the same time, he is all God can be in a human. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. Jesus is all we can be in God, but he is also all God can be in us. He is our example of what holiness is and how it works. And by making himself perfectly dependent upon God, he's showing us the key to living the Christian life and the key to truly knowing God. Because all world religions except ours focuses on self-righteousness. My ability to achieve unity with God through my successful obedience and my self-improvement. That's religion. That's every world religion but ours. It's a form of self-righteousness because it's the self that's cleaning up the self and getting the self's act together in order to be good enough for a relationship with God. And Jesus' focus, on the other hand, is not on his self-righteousness, his ability to be good enough for God. He's divested himself of his ability to be good enough for God. His whole focus is on dependence upon his father's righteousness and his father's ability to work through him. Are you making the connection for your own life? Come on, make the connection for your own life. He only does what he sees the Father doing. What's this mean for your life? How do we only do what we see the Father doing? How did he do it? He was fully human. He made himself fully human and fully dependent. How did he, quote, see what his father is doing? What's the key to seeing what the father is doing? How does it work? What's it going to take? The answer is found in verse 12. Listen to this. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Seeing what the Father is doing in any situation in your life is only made possible by being intimate with your Father and knowing His love. If you don't know His complete, unconditional love, you will live trying to earn it. Your focus will not be on the love. Your focus will be on your performance. You will not know what the Father is doing because your focus is not on the Father. It is on yourself and, and cultivating your own righteousness. Hello? That's how it works. It's how it works. The key to knowing what the Father is doing is just knowing the Father. 
And the key to knowing the Father is getting the focus off your life and yourself and your own good works for Him, forgetting about that long enough to just get your attention on Him. And then He'll whisper something in your ear about what He would like you to do. And you'll go and do it. And it'll be God. And you'll say, wow, that was incredible. What a result. Boy, it only happened because I took my focus off myself. For a few minutes, I stopped worrying about my own righteousness and I stumbled into His. The key to being in this kind of infinite, excuse me, intimate relationship with your Father God is knowing that He loves you. Because when you know that He loves you, you relax. You're not all self-focused when you're knowing that He's loving you. You're caught up in Him. It's so easy to hear His voice when you're caught up in Him. And it's so hard to hear it when you're caught up in yourself and being good enough to hear His voice. Your efforts to be good enough to hear His voice gets in the way of hearing His voice. Do you see how evil works? It merely, evil is nothing but diverting your attention off of the goodness of God and His love for you. That's sin. Sins are the stuff that result from that lack of attention on God, that lack of focus, that self-focus, that religious focus. You can only risk intimacy with your father if you really believe he loves you. And some of you are smart and you're thinking this right now. Well, Jesus is so close to God. He knows God loves him. So it's easy for him to believe God loves him. So it's easy for him to hear God's voice and be caught up in God. But how do I know that God loves me like that? Because I don't feel like God loves me like that. Most of the time I feel like I have to work for his love. So most of the time I'm working for his love, which undermines the idea that I already have it. So how do I get to where Jesus is at with the Father? And does this equation of being so caught up in the Father's love that my righteousness is dependent upon him, does that really work? I mean, can I really get that in my own life? Because I'm really human. Oh, gee, Jesus wasn't really human. Yeah, he was because he made himself completely dependent upon his father for his holiness. Oh, that sounds like grace. Oh, that's grace. Wow. Okay, here's how you get to know. Here's your proof text. Here's how you get to know that you have the same relationship with the Father that Jesus does. You're in the same position as Jesus is in. And if it works for Jesus to be focused on the Father's love and caught up in Him, and therefore He can hear and see what the Father is doing, and therefore do actions that please the Lord, and He can feel good about Himself for a few minutes. If that works for Him, it'll work for you. Here's how we know you're in the same place. And it's John 17. We're just rushing ahead in the book of John. But when we get to this passage, all heaven opens. And I'm just giving you just the clouds are going to part just for a little second here to catch some of the beauty. And then they'll close up again. But we're going to get to John 17. It's going to rock your world. And if you really get it, you'll never be the same. This is Jesus. John 17, verses 20 to 23. He's praying for his friends. He's praying for his friends the night before his death. This is a deathbed confession. This is his chance to unburden himself about the things that matter most deeply to him. And he tells them all about his relationship with the Father and 
the Father's plans for him and the Father's plans for them. And then he prays for them. This is his deathbed prayer for his closest friends the night before he dies. This is serious stuff. We're looking into the very heart of Jesus. We're looking into the issues that matter most to him. What he would say to those the day before he dies. And he prays for them. Isn't that wonderful? He prays for them and he prays for you and me. Because listen, this is the key. He says this. He's speaking to his father about his disciples who are sitting right with him at the table. He says this. Father, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? Run it forward 2,000 years, it's us. We're sitting in this room as Christians because he gave those guys the authority to go out and speak in his name so others could believe and have what they have received from God and it's rolled forward for 2,000 years and that's why we're sitting here today. Jesus is praying for us in this passage. It's the only recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible where he is actually praying for us. So that makes it like seriously important. Right? This is a red letter prayer. This is a big one. Now let's hear what he says. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. And then we go forward. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them the same as you have loved me. People, this is good news. This is the best news in the Bible. The Father loves us with the same love he loves Jesus. And he invites us into the same quality of relationship he has with Jesus. And our righteousness will not be dependent upon keeping laws and living legalistically and getting our act together and looking really good. Our righteousness will depend on the fact that we've chosen to trust in the goodness and the love of God to die on the cross for us so we can be holy. And that sets us free to live dependently upon him because we're so certain of his love, we feel safe with him. And it's not a frightening thing to say, what would you like me to do? It's a wonderful response to what he's already done to say, what would you like me to do? And he actually whispers what he would like us to do. And he shows us what he's doing in given situations. And he invites us to come in and be part of it with him. And the results we call holy. But it was the relationship that was holy before it ever turned into the results. And it's a holy relationship because his love has been poured out of us. Poured out upon us because of the cross. Then the world will know that you sent me and you have already. You have already loved them even as you have already loved me. The same love the Father has for Jesus is for you. The same relationship of dependence upon the Father is for you. The same intimacy Jesus has with the Father is available to you. It is His will for you. And the more time you spend talking and listening to Him, the more you will know His love and the more you will know His will and the more you will be led to do only what He can do because He's given you the Holy Spirit. 
His own presence, His very personality living inside of you. It can't get any more intimate than that. And you will be free of religious legalism. You will be free of the burden of self-righteousness, of always trying to be good enough to earn God's love and acceptance. And just think for a minute of the peace that that will bring to you. The sense of well-being and security and not having to struggle. Think of that peace. Is that not one of the greatest gifts a person can ever receive? Let's close our eyes. We're done way early, so let's just wait and see what the Lord wants to do. Tell him you love him. Just speak it out loud. Tell him, how, tell him how you feel about his goodness. Just say it out loud. Who cares what your neighbor thinks? Just speak out. How do you feel? The Lord says, how do you feel about me? The Father says, how do you feel about me? Tell him how you feel about him. It's time to drop your burdens. I hear the Lord saying, bring your burdens to me. You've been carrying a burden of righteousness trying to do it yourself. Bring me that burden and give it to me. Hand over your striving. Just hand it to me. And be with me. Come tell me how you feel. Tell me the truth. Give me your burden. Give me the burden of your righteousness. Now listen to the Holy Spirit tell you how I feel about you. Just listen for a minute. Listen to the Holy Spirit tell you how I feel about you. Forget your religious ideas. Just listen for a minute. 
Because I've sent the Holy Spirit to talk to you. I've sent the Holy Spirit to tell you how I feel about you. I've sent the Holy Spirit to bring my Father heart to you. So just listen for a minute. Let me ask you a question, because when you uh, none of you are probably going to bury any sandwiches today and try to take a walk. So let's bring it right to where we live. Let me ask you a question. I want you to be really, 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 really honest so we don't waste our time here today. How many of you, when you don't pray, you feel guilty? Raise your hand. Great. We live in a little guilty church. How many of you, when you don't read the Bible every day, you feel guilty? Raise your hand. Okay, So you're living under the law. That's what that is. That's our law. How many of you, this is interesting, when you read a chapter, you hear, you have this thought, why didn't you read two? Or why didn't you read, like, the whole book, like Pastor John would do? Okay. Or Mark? How many of you, you pray and then... Even if you do pray, you think, I should have prayed longer. And you should on yourself, right? Should, S-H-O-U-L-D. Raise your hand. If you, if you read a little bit, I should have read more. You pray a little bit, you should have, raise your hand. You should have done more, right? See, That's the law. That's our kind of law that we live under. So let me tell you a little story. So when I was in my mid-20s, single, uh, one-bedroom one apartment in East County, and I'm serving the church, man. I'm volunteering the youth group. I'm a businessman. I'm giving money to the church. I mean, I am in it to win it. I mean, I'm 150% in. And I remember I was sitting in my chair in the living room by myself, <clears throat> and I committed to a certain amount of prayer. Like when I send out 30 for 30s, which is pray 15 minutes a day for 30 days, how many of you feel guilty when you sign up for it and then you don't do it? Raise your hand. Okay, great. See, so I'm putting some guilt on you too. So that's good. See, when Jesus came and said, come to me for my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many of you know that scripture? You cleave to it, right? Do you know he was actually talking about uh, a, the religious system that Mark just described today? He was talking to them about the religious system that was a yoke on them that was crushing them. And he said, come to me for relationship, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's talking about what I'm coming to offer as a friendship. What you're under is a religious burden. So come to me. So I'm sitting there in my chair and I'm feeling I have like this, this wet blanket of guilt on me that's weighing me down because I, because I had not prayed. And I committed to prayer. And I was under so much guilt and shame that I just couldn't even pray. And the Lord spoke to me and said this. You never have to pray again. And he didn't say it like he was 
disappointed in my lack of performance. What he said was exactly what he meant. You never have to pray again. And our relationship will be just fine. You're my son. Oh, man. I still feel it going through me right now. Do you know what I did immediately? I hit my knees and prayed like never before. But it was out of joy. We're in this because it's been given to us. We're not having to earn anything. Amen? It's a life of response. I have this image. Often it comes to me of of heaven. And, uh, you know, we're all getting judged for the quality of our lives and what we did. And I'm there as the pastor, and there's a bunch of people in our church, and they're waiting to get their rewards. So the first guy walks up and says, Jesus, here's, here's here's what I did for you. I worked in Sunday school for 15 years. And he's feeling pretty good about it. I worked in Sunday school for 15 years. He hands the gift to Jesus. And Jesus takes it and goes, why did you do this? What, what, what made you do this? And in heaven, you can't lie. It's just sad. If you're in the presence of perfect truth. What comes out of your mouth is going to be the truth. So Jesus says to, says to him, why did you do that? What made you do that? And he points to me. He says, the pastor, he talked me into it. He made me do it. And Jesus looks at me and he goes, really? And he drops it. He says, that's worthless. Then the next person comes and what did you do? Well, I, uh, I ran a connect group for all these years and pastored all these people. Why did you do that? He made me do it. Pointing at me. And Jesus goes, I never asked you to do that. In fact, I was going to ask you to do something else, but he had an idea for your life. So he just stepped in and did my thing. And and you weren't really even serving me. Look, listen, people. The only actions that have any value are the actions that come from your relationship with God. The only godly actions we have are the ones that were initiated in Him. The rest are just the flesh. We always think, you know, we always think that the flesh is like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No, the flesh is any activity that doesn't have its origin in God. Good works can be the flesh and have no value at all. How do we save ourselves from good works that have no value at all? We stay close enough to Jesus that the only things we're doing are the things that he has prompted us to do. Does that mean we throw away wisdom in the Bible? No, we live the Bible because we know it pleases him and we know it's his will. But we have to be guided as to what to do when. It shouldn't be running around scrambling, making busy work to feel good about our faith. If you're rooted in a relationship, you will function from that relationship. And you're on safe ground. 
But if you're not in relationship, all the rules and regulations and good principles won't make you holy. The only actions that have eternal value are the actions which came from an eternal God in relationship with you. Are you getting this? I know it's contrary to the way we think, but the way we think is fleshly a lot of the time. We're not getting what what life in the spirit really is. So let's close, if we could. I really wanted to close with singing Good, Good Father. Because this is really the heart of our identity. And this is our worship to him draws us close to him. And then we go and live from that closeness. That's the Christian life. Okay? I want to do something before we sing that. So I'm going to ask that uh, all those that raised their hand and those that didn't, but you still feel the same way, all of those who feel guilt over not performing well enough for the Father. Wouldn't you like to let that go this morning? Just let it drop right here on the floor and roll down into the pit and disappear. Jesus did not call us into performing. He called us into a friendship. And so I'm going to ask, I'm going to lead you in this real quick. And I want you to take the guilt of your failures, of not praying enough, not reading enough, not loving enough, not giving enough, not attending church enough. All the guilt that comes from all of that, all the guilt that comes from sin, all that. Let's lay down at Jesus' feet and call him our Savior again this morning. Okay? And then we're going to ask him to restore your joy, the joy of your salvation, the psalmist said. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So let's do this. Close your eyes for a moment. Just say this out loud with me. Gil, you are not my friend. (laughs) Uh, And say, you are not the voice of Jesus. So shut up in Jesus' name. And say, Lord, I'm just going to love you. <laughs> and if you need some, uh, if you need some grace, an administration of, of grace from the Spirit, come forward while we worship and receive it. Yeah. Because this is a chance to receive. Not just a chance to hear, but a chance to receive. Okay, now ask him this. Say, Lord, restore to me. The joy of your salvation. I'm going to ask you to pray that again because you were listening to what I was saying and then repeating. I want you to go deep with this and just say that phrase again with me. Say, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Okay, now let's all stand and let's sing this good, good father. I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come down front. Religion took a big hit today. And this is a great opportunity to return to your first love. Prayer teams, please come down front. They're going to be down here. They're going to pray for the sick. Jesus is still healing sickness and disease. If you've never given your life to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, come right down front down here. They're going to pray with you. Jesus is going to forgive you for everything you've ever done. He's going to breathe his spirit into your soul, and you're going to become a son or daughter of God this morning. You know, it's amazing to me that, like, when I came to Christ when I was 19 years old, I came out of emptiness and total freedom. Hearing the gospel message that Jesus 
bought and paid heaven for me. Heaven's a free gift. And I come into it. And then you get into this treadmill of performance. And then you feel guilty for not praying enough, not reading enough, not going to church enough and all that. That's not what Jesus called us into. And you may need a complete restoration of freedom in Jesus all over again. If that's you, just stand and worship the Father, good, good Father, and really mean it when you sing it. Or come down front and let these prayer teams pray for you. And let freedom reign in your soul and your spirit today. And listen, we sang about the God of miracles. Believe God for miracles today. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your relationship with God. God does not have a plan B. He just keeps doing plan A. The first plan A didn't work. He erases it and you get a brand new plan A. That's our God. All right. So let's go for plan A today. Restoration of our first love, our love for Jesus. Now let's just worship. Come on. Just raise your hands. Let's sing good, good Father. That's who he is. And let's let God restore the joy of your salvation today. Come on. Let's worship him.